We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, Elmani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, Elmani. Today we're going to begin a new book. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start the book of 1 Thessalonians. I have it in my notes uh, to go through the whole chapter. It's not a long chapter, but today is communion. And uh, let's see how far we get into this. You read in verse 1, it says, Paul, uh, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I almost hesitate to do this to you, but I think it would probably be wise to go over to the book of Acts right away and see when this church was planted. And we read the account in Acts chapter 17. In verse 1, this is Paul and Silas and Timothy it says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to, here it is, Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And so he's there, it says, for three Sabbaths. And so, uh, again, we're not 100% sure, but apparently he was there for only a few weeks. If you think about it, that's not a long time. But as he's preaching, he's preaching the Christ. He's reasoning with them. And in verse 4 it says, And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. And so the Lord was doing a good work, you know. Um, some of the God-fearers were getting saved. Um, some of the prominent women were getting saved. Uh, God was, uh, it says right there, a great multitude of Gentiles were believing this message. And, and we're going to see later it was real. It was real. This is what's so beautiful about it. So what ends up happening in verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded, notice the reason, becoming envious, they took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city. Uh, imagine getting drugged. <laughs> they dragged this guy, you know. Um, we're going to see that this is part of what's the context of Thessalonica. And a lot of the churches really in that day is that they were so heavily persecuted and, uh, and yet, they were pure. And, you know, just as a quick side note, you guys, um, I, I look at the church sometimes today, and I, and I think how oftentimes we can get complacent and comfortable and almost numb, and there's, a, there's like a lack of zeal or fire. And, and, I, and I'm afraid to say, but I almost pray, you know, for trials in our life, for difficulties in our life, for persecutions in our life, because... You know, what we find is that when we're, when we're going through the hard times, I, I think it tests our faith. And, 
And so these guys, they're getting, think about it, they're getting drugged around, they're, they're going to be physically persecuted, they're going to lose their jobs, um, they're going to be, you know, violently assaulted, a lot of different things, they're going to be, and, and so, you know, as this guy gets dragged out, it says right there, those who, um, it says right there, this was the complaint, I like this, uh, when they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down, have come here too. Isn't that our dream? Isn't that our dream? Lord, I want to be used by you to turn the world upside down or, or to turn it right side up. They had made such a difference. And God can use our life just like he did Paul and Silas. And so these guys were upset with that. And it says right here, there's a Jason, verse 7, has harbored them and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Amen. I like that. I mean, I just love the way you're giving the message. Here's our message. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. You know, and so it says in verse 8, they troubled the crowd and the rulers of this city when they heard these things. And so when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea when they arrived and they went to the synagogue of the Jews. And so they went away. There are three weeks. God did a great work. Uh, persecution began. And the Lord didn't always lead in this way. Uh, but in this case, they said, Paul, you, you got to go. And by night, you know, he left. Um, but we see even though he left physically, he didn't leave in his heart. He was still concerned about the church. So if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, what you find is that Paul um, had a hard time um, with this. If you go over to chapter 2 in 1 Thessalonians, look at verse 17. It says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. I mean, they were taken away. You know, um, and uh, but he says, but our heart was still there, right? And so what had happened, if you go back to, go down to chapter 3, look at verse 1. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it, it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith, you know? And so... You know, we're going to see uh, as we go through the second missionary journey, Paul, he goes to Philippi and he gets arrested and beat up there. Then he travels a hundred miles to Thessalonica, which is where he is right now. He's there for three weeks. God does a great work. And then they get, they have to leave by night. But he's just wondering, I wonder how they're doing. I wonder how they're doing because this is not, you know, an easy situation in which they're afflicted and they're persecuted. So what he does, it says right there in to when, when it came to the point where we couldn't even endure it anymore, we sent uh, Timothy uh, to go and establish you, encourage you, but a lot of it is to find out how they were doing. And so uh, in verse 5, it says, For this reason of chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. And so he sends Timothy you know, uh, to encourage them, to establish them, and to find out how they're doing, you know. 
And that was the heart of Paul. That was the heart of a pastor. Obviously, that was the heart uh, that God had given to him because that's God's heart, right? And so when he goes and he sends to Timothy, and then Timothy comes back, he gives him the report. And, and you know what? Paul is so blessed because they were really saved. They really knew the Lord. They were thriving. And, uh, and then, you know, wasn't a perfect church. There's no perfect church. They had different little things here and questions that needed to be answered. And so um, we're going to have this letter and then the next letter. And Paul writes to them, you know, and it's just a little bit of a background to the book. Um, and so back in chapter 1, we're kind of getting an idea of what's going on. Names himself right there, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, Silvanus is also known as Silas. Um, he was the given to Paul uh, after the Jerusalem council, so he was recruited from Jerusalem. And then we know that when Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways, uh, Barnabas took Mark, and then the Bible says that the church commended Paul and Silas, and then they went through their second missionary journey. And so Silas joins him, and then it, he mentions Timothy right here. Now, uh, more than likely, Timothy got saved in the first missionary journey, but then in the second missionary journey, when Paul uh, visits the area of Derby and Lystra, they talk about this young man, Timothy, and everybody's saying, wow, he really loves the Lord. And so Paul took him because his father was Greek, his mother was Jewish, had him circumcised, and then he brings him along uh, to this missionary journey as well. And so these are the guys that are writing uh, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so um, Thessalonica, uh, written by Paul um, from, we believe, Corinth in the year AD 51. It's interesting. It may be the first biblical letter um, some argue it's Galatians. It's one of those two. But if it was the first biblical letter, it was written just uh, actually less than 20 years after Jesus died. Now, for some of you here, maybe when some of you younger people, you're thinking 20 years is a long time. But for us older people, 20 years is not that long, huh? Can you guys remember 20 years ago? Okay, and it's still a lot of those things are still fresh in our memories. All these things are happening, you know, rapidly, and so. A.D. 51, he writes from Corinth. And uh, what we find is that this city was a big city with a population of 200,000 people. And there was a large Jewish population as well. Uh, Thessalonica was the capital of the Roman province. And forgive me, I, I, I have maps in my notes, but I don't have them for you. I didn't finish it enough to send it to Henry. So we'll do it for second service. If you want to stay for second service, you can see the maps. Or you can maybe shoot me an email and I'll send them to you. But... You know, it, you'll find it's in this, uh, I don't know what you would call it, it's like a canal, and um, it, it's got a, a nice harbor, and it's in the, Rome, the main Roman road called the Via Ignatia. And so it was a, it was a huge city, second only to Athens. And, uh, and Paul, remember we talked about the fact that he was in Philippi? Well, so he travels 100 miles to Thessalonica, and um, probably because of the fact, not only is he spirit-led, but he's wise, and he knows that if I can win this city for Christ, then they'll, then it'll spread. And we're going to see that's exactly what happens. If you guys were to travel to that area today, the city still exists under the modern name of Thessaloniki. I wish they would have kept the original name, 
Thessalonica sounds better, huh? Anyways, uh, prior to that, it was called Salonica. Today, it's the second largest city in Greece with a population well over 300,000. Uh, I read one article that said it was close to a million, so that's a big contrast. All I know is it's a huge city. You know, it's interesting to note that it served as an important Allied base during World War I, and in World War II, um, this city was captured by the German army. Interestingly enough, there was still a large Jewish population. There were 60,000 Jews that were still there, and what happened was they were captured by the German army, and they were then uh, deported and exterminated. And so, just to give you a little bit of background about this whole thing, Paul wondered how they were doing, and so he writes to them. He writes to, it says right there, the church of God. The church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course we know the word church, it literally means called out ones. It's a gathering of called out ones. That's who we are. And the Bible says in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, the first time we find the word church in the Bible, I will build my church. And so it's such a blessing to be part of the church. It's his church. And he will build his church. And he said the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. And so he's writing to that beautiful church. And, uh, and, he, and he gives kind of a typical greeting, but I pray it would never get old. He says right there, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And those are kind of like Siamese twins, huh? Uh, in one sense, it's the Jewish greeting. In another sense, it's the Gentile greeting. One is shalom. That's Jewish for peace. I like that. You see someone and you say peace. Uh, the other is Greek. You say karis, grace. To me, I don't know about to you, but to me, those are two huge words in my life. How I long for peace. You know, we live in a world that it, it does everything it can to take away our peace. I mean, it makes us so busy. It bombards us with constant information. You can hardly ever find a, a quiet place just to be alone with God or to be alone with your own thoughts that are stirring around inside of you. And, I, and I, we're so anxious and we're so worried and we're so concerned, overly concerned, and there are so many things that we're afraid of. And God, one of the fundamental things He wants to give us is He wants to give us peace. And if you're a Christian, you should have that. If not, then something's wrong. Maybe one of the things that are wrong is you don't understand grace. Because peace always follows grace. You know, you're saved by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're saved. You're free. You're forgiven. You're going to heaven. That should give you a peace because now you have peace with God, so now you should have that peace of God. But also, the grace doesn't end when you get saved. It's not like, okay, you got saved by grace, and now it's you know based on your performance. No, never. I mean, I pray that we would have a real good grip on grace, a holy and healthy understanding of grace. You know, none of this, you guys, is based on our own righteousness. If I could say this, you know, our righteousness is puny, pathetic, and our performance will never meet 
even par. Our, when we get our eyes on ourselves, we're going to be in big trouble. You know, the day that you lose that place of grace and you base your relationship with God on how well you did today, that's the day, that's the moment you lose your peace. You know, it's not that we sin lightly or loosely or, you know, anything. I mean, we, we try not to sin. We, we flee from sin. We hate sin because we love God. And that's our heart, right? But as Christians, we need to know that this relationship that we have with our Father, the unconditional love that will never fluctuate is not based on whether or not we had a good day or a bad day, whether or not we prayed for an hour or we haven't prayed for 17 weeks. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's based on the cross. It's based on that grace. And it's important for us to know that it's unearned. It's unmerited. It will never, ever be deserved. And when we, and it's hard, and I was telling my son on the way over here, I don't know about for you guys, but it's hard for me like to understand grace. You know, I, I was telling him, I struggle with this. I, I do. You know, but I, I'm, I'm trying to understand the fact that I am accepted in the Beloved, not based on my performance. Because when I have that grace, then I'm going to have peace. And I have a feeling that that grace will work in me to change me. And so even in the greeting, there's a lot, right? And so if you're taking notes, the first is the greeting, and then second is the gratitude. Because look what it says right here. It says, we give thanks to God. We give thanks to God, always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. First the greeting and then the gratitude. Paul was grateful and he was thankful. First of all, we see here what they did because of the fact that they were grateful. There in verse 2 is they prayed. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. You know, I mean, you see the Lord do a work, and it's a simple thing. You know, you just say thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for them. And Father, would you please uh, continue to bless them? You know, and that's what happens when we have a heart of gratitude. These are two of the most important aspects of prayer. Uh, I don't know about you. Probably you. I, I know with me, most of my prayer time is just thanking God. Is thanking Him. Thank you for, oh Lord, and thank you that, I always tell you guys this, that you helped me fall asleep, and thank you that you sustained me while I slept, and thank you that you woke me up, and thank you for the sun, and thank you for your faithfulness. This world keeps spinning. My heart is beating. Those birds are singing. This air I'm breathing. I mean, just thank you, thank you, thank you. And I always say thank you. Thank you for the cross. And then I start looking out, and I say, thank you for the work you're doing in Him, and you're doing in her and you're doing in them it's thank you I mean just we could just flood our you know if you're wondering like some people even tell me I have a hard time praying they even tell me that like I, I, I don't know what to say just you know start thanking God 
you know, and thanking the Lord for the work that he is doing in the lives of these people, right? And that's what he was doing. He was thanking God for them. And then he was, uh, I believe, praying for them. And that's what happens when you have a heart of gratitude for them. I thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done in my wife. And I pray for her. Lord, bless her. God had done such a beautiful work there in Thessalonica that he felt, Paul felt, almost obligated to give thanks. Um, and he wrote the same thing in Second Thessalonians 1, verse 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Paul was just thanking God. You know, um, the Bible says uh, in Ezekiel 22:30 that God's always looking for somebody to pray for others. Did you know that? He's looking for someone to stand in the gap. I was talking to my son about this on the way over here, and um, uh, I was telling he said, "Well, why do you think that God put that in there?" And I said, "I think it's because have you ever had someone come up to you and say this to you? I want you to know that I'm praying for you." I've had people come up to me and say, uh, Manny, I want you to know that I pray for you every day. Okay? And not to try to hog all your prayers, okay? <laughs> I'm not trying to do that. But I tell you what, that, that just, that encourages me. That encourages me. And I think, uh, and Paul was tell, telling the truth, but he's also trying to encourage them. I, I thank God for you. And I want you guys to know that I'm always praying for you. That's what gratitude does. You know, what, what, what did it make them do? It made them pray. And then we, we see why they were grateful. It says right here, remembering in verse 3, your without ceasing works of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice who sees? In the sight of our God and Father. They were grateful, number one, for the Thessalonians' work of faith. Work of faith. You know, because we're going to see later, at, and I think at the end of the day, just really grateful that they were really saved. A salvation that produced these things. Uh, and this, the first one is works. It was a faith that produced works. It wasn't a dead faith. James chapter 2 Verse 17 says that if faith doesn't have works, it's a dead faith. You know, and you say, there's a lot of people who say they believe, but they're dead in their sins. And the reason that we can see it, and again, we're not the ones who call the final analysis, but we can kind of see it, is because they have no works to show. Paul was just so grateful because of the fact that they had these works of faith their life changed. Uh, the evidence for salvation was visible. They worked and they worked. And I believe the without ceasing part is supposed to be part of the working part. That's the way they were. Uh, they worked well because their faith was firm. Uh, William Barclay said, Nothing tells us more about a man than the way in which he works. He may work in fear of the whip, he may work for hope of gain. He may work from a grim sense of duty or he may work inspired by faith. His faith is that this is the task that God has given him and he's working in the last analysis not for men but for God. 
And those works of faith, Paul saw them, they saw them, and he was so grateful to God. And then it even went beyond that. Notice in verse 3, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love. So it was a, it, they, their faith was real, it, it moved them to work, and their love was real. And it weren't beyond work, it, it went even into to laboring for the Lord. The Greek word for labor here, uh, kopos, it has at its heart a beating, a beating of the breast with grief and sorrow. And it speaks of an intense labor united with trouble and toil. You know, and you think about that, and I, and I think sometimes, I know things are different now. When I first got saved, uh, I tell you what, man, I, I just, I don't know, I, I, I was just always serving always serving, always working, always volunteering, always volunteering, always showing up at the church. A lot of the guys were that really loved the Lord. They were just there serving any opportunity they had, right? But I think, I'm afraid now we live in a church or in a Christian world where they don't want to get their hands dirty. Uh, they don't want to sweat. And they don't want to have any difficulties or any inconveniences, but you see, the Thessalonians, they weren't like that. They not only worked, they labored. The word right here speaks of, you know, an intense labor with trouble and toil. Yeah, you know, I went to the church and they didn't even give me a break or whatever. You know, they didn't. And it's like, man, no, we can't have that heart, right? Uh, what's, what's the difference between those who go and... And they, and, they, and they work and, and maybe they just do it to a certain degree or they do it in order to receive something, a pat on the back. What's the difference between that individual and the Thessalonians? And, and really, and this is a hard you know, thing to swallow, the difference is love. Because he says right there, it was a labor of love. They love God. And they love the people. And that's why they labored the way they did. It's agape love. Bernard Newman, he tells how once he stayed in a, a Bulgarian peasant's house. And all the time he was there, the daughter was switching or stitching away at a dress. She was sewing and stitching and working on that dress. All the time he was there. So he said to her, don't you ever get tired of that eternal sewing and stitching and working. And, and she said, oh no. You see, this is my wedding dress. This is for the one I love. See, and that's the way it is for us as Christians. You know, when you, when you, when you love, then it's no problem laboring for the Lord because you're doing it for the Lord. And during his visit to the Boys Town Orphanage in the 40s, a reporter for Life magazine observed a 10-year-old boy carrying another boy on his back. And he's carrying him, you know, all over the place. And he said, hey, little boy, isn't he heavy? <laughs> and the reporter asked him, and the little boy said, he ain't heavy, he's my brother. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it should be for us. Uh, he's not heavy, she's not heavy, this isn't heavy. When you have a heart, for the Lord, you see, the Thessalonians had the they had these works of faith, they had this labor of love, and then in verse three it says they had this patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, 
And, and I've told you guys a million times that hope is a certain certainty about the future. Hope is when you see the future as your friend, even when the present is your enemy. And the devil would love to take away your hope. But you've got to see the future in the hands of the Father. And then you can have hope. And that hope will give you endurance. You won't quit. You won't split. As a matter of fact, you'll rise up and you'll work hard. One Irish proverb says, Hope is the physician of every misery. You see, the Thessalonians were being persecuted and afflicted. And they were going through difficult times because of their faith, because of their obedience. Some people have a hard time when they cry and complain because they're going through difficult times because of their sin. That's different. But even in that, you find hope. But these guys, they're going through hard times because of their obedience. They didn't lose hope, right? And so they didn't quit and they held on. They just held on to Jesus. It says right there, and patience of hope in who? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you have your hope in anyone or anything or any other situation, you will fail. Your hope has to be anchored in Christ. He will never, ever, ever fail you. See? It's been said that life with Christ is an endless hope, but life without Him is a hopeless end. And that's why you have to put your hope in Christ. And that hope, and if I could say this, is not only for you, but it's for others. Is there anyone in your life that you need to hang on to don't give up on. Uh, one person said, when you say a situation or a person is hopeless, what you're doing is you're slamming the door in God's face. Don't do that to God. There is hope, right? They were grateful. Uh, Paul was grateful for their works and their labor and their, and their endurance. And then in verse 4, uh, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Paul was grateful that God really saved them. He was so grateful, knowing you were elected by God. 1 Peter 1-2 says, We're elected according to the foreknowledge of God. And so God looks down the corridors of time and sees whose heart might be inclined towards his invitation, and, and he elects them. And you know, it's, it's hard to understand divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but neither are violated. God wants everybody to be saved, but we must somehow respond to that salvation. But when we do get saved, let's give him all the glory and all the credit. And all Paul knew is that, man, they were really saved, knowing, not wondering if they're saved, knowing that you're really saved. You know, and you might have sometimes just people in your family and you're like, you know, I'm not really sure they're saved, you know, but I hope so. There's hope or whatever, your friends or people in the church, you know, when they went forward, they said their prayer. doesn't mean they're saved. Time will tell and only the Lord knows those who are His, but sometimes you see somebody and you just know. Oh, you just know. They know the Lord, right? There's no doubt about it. That's the way Paul saw the Thessalonians, see? And, and, and we need to make sure that we're saved. We need to make sure that we're kind of one of the elected, so to speak. Second Peter 1.10 says that. It says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. 
you know, for us too, you know, to, to live that life, not a religion, but a life of love and obedience to the Lord in a practical way. You know, Paul was so concerned with these guys, uh, how they were doing, and so he finds out, and he's so blessed to know that the, the work that God did was real. Uh, it's interesting, the, the phrase right there in verse 4, beloved brethren, that was a phrase which the Jews applied only to uh, great men, like, for example, Moses or Solomon or Israel itself. But now here we see in literature that this greatest privilege of the greatest men of God's chosen people was now extended to the humblest Gentiles. He calls them beloved brethren, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. He was so blessed that it was real. They really got saved. It was really a work of God. Been there for three weeks. You know, we, we, we scattered seed. We watered. We saw what looked like it was the Lord. But man, then we had to leave. So we sent Timothy back to find out how's it going. And we're going to see later. Wow. They really got saved. They really did. And I read a story about a father who took his son to one of those wax museums where there were there on display in room after room wax imitations of famous people. And the father thought his son would be impressed with how realistic these mannequins were, but for two hours uh, the son did nothing but sigh and complain. And then finally in desperation he said to his father, Dad, let's go somewhere where things are real. <laughs> and, I, and I think for us, you know, um, you know, seeing that real work of God in the heart of someone, for those of you who love Jesus, does that not give you joy? Wow, they really got saved, you know? And so we see the greeting, we see the gratitude, and then we see the gospel. Look at verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sent forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Wow. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. And we see the gospel here that, that, that came to them. It wasn't just words that were spoken, but it was the power of God. It was truly the Holy Spirit and it says right there, much assurance, deep conviction. It came to them, right? And notice that Paul calls it our gospel in verse 5. And I'll, and I'll say this real quick. We might come back to these verses, um, but just for now, our gospel um, is, the, is the true gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. But I think it's also just our gospel being... Um, us. Uh, there's a book out there right now. I never, I haven't read the book, but I heard about it, and it's called the Fifth Gospel, because you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have your life. That's what the book is kind of saying. You know, your life 
should kind of be like a testimony and a witness. And I think when Paul's talking about our gospel, primarily he's talking about the gospel, you know, that Christ died for our sins on the cross. He was, you know, died and put in a grave and he rose the third day. And then if you exercise faith in him, you're going to be saved. He's talking primarily about that, but he's also talking about their life. And that's why he, he, he mentions this right here. You know, notice what he says, and you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And so, you know, you became followers uh, of us and of the Lord. So there is an element of our gospel going out. And prayerfully, God will just stir us up to know that it's not just the words that we that we share or the words that we preach you know, um, to our kids or to whoever it might be. Our, our lives speak so much more loudly than our lips. I like that it was, it was our gospel, it was the true gospel, it was their life. But then it became, in one sense, their gospel. Uh, again, notice in verse 6, you became followers of us and of the Lord having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you, you became examples to all in Macedonia and the Kaya who believe. For from you, the word of the Lord has sent forth, not only in Macedonia and Kaya, but also in every place. Imagine someone says, hey, I, you know, and now there you have churches all over the place. You got churches on every corner, and so it's different. But imagine then, you know, someone, there's no churches, and someone plants a church in Almani, right? And then someone three weeks later, they write a letter. They write a letter three weeks later. And they're just like, wow. And from you, the gospel has gone out to Nevada and Arizona and the outskirts of California, hundreds of miles away in the provinces of uh, you know, Macedonia and Achaia, all through Greece. And even to, it says right there, um, to, the, to every place. Imagine that. And you're like, well, that's impossible. What kind of God do you have? It's when the Lord really works, right? And the gospel goes out. Oh, they must have sent emails. They didn't have emails back then, okay? <laughs> it was the Lord, you know? And so it's our gospel, and then it becomes their gospel, right? And it's so beautiful when the Lord does that. You know, and you might be called just to minister to one or two people, but then those two people, they minister to 20 people, and those 20 people minister to 2,000 people. It's amazing what God will do, what God will do when the Lord is in it. You know, from them, it says right here, uh, verse 8, for from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. And, and literally it speaks of a trumpet, like they're blowing a trumpet. You know, the word could also mean of a roll of thunder. I mean, it was just loud how it went out. And they became a model. And I like this right here, you guys, because um, it says right here, and you became followers of us and the Lord. We, of course, know that that's uh, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So don't imitate anybody if they're not imitating Christ. Ultimately, we want to imitate Christ, right? And so it says, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia. So being examples uh, to the church and the surrounding assemblies. 
And, and so we see the greeting, we see uh, here the gratitude, we see the gospel, and, and the one that is over in and above all is this last point, and that is just God himself. God himself. It says in verse 9, <clears throat> For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of God, wrath to come. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll just close this, and, and like I said earlier, maybe we'll come back to this next week, because I, I, we went over this fast, but I think really the, the points are real, they're real clear. Uh, number one, who God is. It says right here, he's the living God, Right? It says right here, he's the true God. You know, uh, and I pray we would know that. When we talk and we pray, we're not talking to air. We're talking to him. He's the living God. He's not a false God. He's not a dead God. He's a true God. That's who he is, right? And, and what does he do? Verse 10, he raised uh, his son from the dead. He raises the dead. We know who God is. He's the living God and he's the true God. And we know what God is because God raises the dead, those who are dead in their sins. God raises the dead. He raised his son from the dead. He raises us from the dead. When we die, we will rise. God will give us a new body. And it says right here that he delivers us from the wrath to come. Again, conversation with my son, and it's so cool to know he understands the fact that if God gave us justice, we would all be in hell. He knows that. But God has given us grace. God has given us heaven. He delivers us from the wrath to come, and the wrath is coming soon and very soon. When I think of the wrath to come, I not only think of the way the enemy is going to you know, create his problems during the tribulation period but I, I believe primarily it's just it's just been the wrath of God he delivers us from that right that you if you can visualize yourself uh, you're on the slippery slope sliding to hell without hope and you were going to end up in hell forever and ever justifiably so but God delivered you See, that's who God is. He's a living God. He's a true God. What he does is he raises the dead. He delivers us from the wrath to come. And so what are we to do? Well, we read it right here. We're to turn to God. Turn from our sins and turn to God, right? And we are to serve God, it says right here. And how, you know, because this is what they had done. He says, you know, we uh, see what God has done in that, you know, you turn to God from idols uh, to serve. You're supposed to, we're supposed to turn to God, but then that's not it. You've got to serve God. Serve God. It's synonymous with salvation. When you're not serving God, something's wrong. Turn to God. Serve God. And then he says right here, and, and then you wait. It says right here, and to wait for his son from heaven, and, and you wait for God. And we're going to see that that's going to be a large part of 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter in this book ends with reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. How many of you guys like waiting? Don't you enjoy waiting? 
Well, remember, this is not that type of waiting. The word translated wait here in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it means to wait uh, for someone with patience and confidence. It means to wait with expectancy. You know, one thing that's interesting, real quick, and it's even fascinating to me, if you put 1 Thessalonians 1.3 right next to 1 Thessalonians 1.9-10, you get this picture. Okay, remember earlier we talked about your work of faith, right? Your work of faith. And so here we see they turned to God from idols. And then earlier we talked about the labor of love. Well, now we talk about serving the living God. And then earlier we read about your patience of hope. Well, now we talk about waiting, that patience waiting for the Son from heaven. They go together. This is what Christians do. You know, they, they work by faith. They labor in love. And they wait on the Lord. And so, you know, in chapters like this, I get so encouraged. Um, because I know, I know that basically in this, in, this, in this room, you know, most of you here know the Lord. Uh, I would, I, I, maybe all of you. Let me see. Let me look real quick. Uh, <laughs> I don't know all of you. But man, I tell you this, okay? I will say this, okay? For those of you here who you're not sure, okay, we do this all the time. All the time. Because the last thing in the world I want to do is give a non-Christian a false assurance. Because you will stand before God one day. Okay? And so if you don't know the Lord... You, yours, there's no change, there's no works, there's no labor, there's no waiting, there's no serving, then you have to acknowledge that. And you have to get right with the Lord. One person said, the person who claims to be one of God's elect, but whose life has not changed, is only fooling himself. So, you know, really come to the Lord. Absolute surrender, you know. You get rid of the sin, and you turn to God. But for those of you who do know the Lord, man, it's a real comforting chapter to know. And I even think of the fact that, that you're, you know, you chose God, yes, but you're elected by God. You're selected by God. And some people don't like to hear that. They're like, no, yes, you are, you know. It's a real, real beautiful story. That I'll, I'll end with this. And I'm probably going to butcher this story, but I heard it today from Dr. David Jeremiah. And... Um, he was talking about uh, uh, a lady who lived in a foreign country that um, looked down upon. It was a place, and it was in a time, it was in a, in a village where, um, you know, if you weren't like a purebred, if you were like a mixed race, then you would be absolutely persecuted all your life. Uh, they were. They even gave this little girl who was eventually born the name of an alien devil. Uh, her whole life was misery. She, she eventually uh, was kicked out of the family. Uh, she found herself in an orphanage um, just having suffered persecution all her life because she was a half-breed, so to speak. And that was something that they didn't accept there and then. And so... You know, one day she's there at the orphanage, she's nine years old, and uh, she hears the news that some Americans 
are going to come to the orphanage to uh, adopt one of the little boys. And so what she does is she gets all the little boys and she fixes them up and she you know, straightens out their clothes and she combs their hair and she gets them all ready uh, for the presentation, right? And, uh, and, and so the American comes and she hears him speaking in a funny language and, and he's looking at all of the little boys, right? And then... For whatever reason, he looks at her. And there she is with all her scars, with all her boils. Uh, she's nine years old, but she weighs like, you know, 50 pounds. She's just tiny, and she has nothing to offer. And what this American does is he puts his hand on her face. And then he starts talking, you know, in this language that she doesn't understand. And what had happened was he chose her. True story. He adopted her. And if, and I know sometimes it's hard to understand how it all works, but you see, that's what we have to see God has done for us. You know, nothing to offer, you know, rejected, sinful, and yet, here has come our wonderful God. And he's chosen us. I pray we would live a life that would honor that truth. And that it would be a life that would be a life of gratitude. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for loving us the way that you do, Lord. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel El Monte at air code 626-454-3414. Remember that Jesus loves you.